beautiful people and welcome to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WBEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. This is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. And I am your host, Olga Peters. So glad you can be joining me. Unfortunately, uh, Representative Emily Kornheiser and this show's regular contributor uh, cannot join us today. So it's just... Mara Collins and I rocking it out for an hour. How are you, Mara? I'm very good. And God knows I talk enough that I'm sure I'll be able to fill in any uh, (laughs) awkward gaps by not having Representative Kornheiser here today. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, So for folks who may not know Mara, she is the executive director of the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. And we're hoping to talk a little bit today about a program, a grant program uh, called the Vermont Homeowner Assistance Program that is designed to help uh, homeowners who have been impacted by COVID. But before we jump into this, this might not be new for regular listeners, but for folks who are new to the show, Mara, what is it that the Vermont Housing Finance Agency does? Yeah, well, uh, next week or two weeks from now, um, it's going to be our 48th birthday. We are young and spry and uh, innovative as ever. Uh, We were created by the legislature in 1974, um, back when the federal government first allowed for states to use certain kinds of bonds where you don't have to pay taxes on your earnings Mm. for charitable purposes. And at that time, once the federal government said, hey, states, you can pick agencies to sell these bonds uh, to help things like uh, financing higher ed and affordable housing and economic development and infrastructure like roads and bridges and hospitals. Um, The legislature created a couple different agencies focused on this. And that's where you got VSAC, the Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. Now, the way their funding works has changed over the years, and the federal government's gotten more involved in that, um, although VSEC still plays a critical role um, in supporting higher ed students. Uh, we have the Vermont Economic Development Authority, VEDA, does the economic development, some agricultural lending. We have the Vermont Bond Bank that works with municipalities, and we have VHFA, who works just specifically on affordable housing. And so... Over the years, we have run a mortgage program that offers um, low interest rate mortgages, primarily, although not exclusively, to first-time home buyers, mm-hmm. uh, all who fall within our income limits and purchase price limits. And then we also offer a rental housing programs where we administer both state and federal tax credits and award these and loans to developers who are building affordable rental housing. So by lowering the cost of what it costs to build the housing, then the ongoing rent can be lower because um, we covered a lot of that with public subsidies. Got you. Now, just to clarify, you know, there's often affordable housing with a capital A, which is usually subsidized through the federal government and HUD. And then there's affordable with a lowercase a, meaning it, it just meets, uh, what, 30% of someone's take-home income. When you're talking about the housing you just talked about, <laughs> which one does it fall yeah. under? 
That's I would capitalize it and say okay. it's affordable housing because there's some government support to it. You know, it's the federal government who allows VHFA to use these tax exempt bonds. And then that goes ahead and, and lowers the cost of housing. And in addition, we layer on tax credits and like you said, HUD money and other resources, state money to make it even more affordable. But I, you are right about the 30% being the academic goal of what uh, people can afford. Now, not every household can afford to spend 30% of their income on housing though. You know, if you have uh, young kids who need childcare, if you have high healthcare costs, if your transportation costs are high because you live far from your job, uh, right now everyone has high transportation costs <laughs> with the cost of gas, then 30% may not be the right number for you. But that's why it's so hard. The first question I'm always asked is, what is affordable housing? Mm. And I always say, well, if you're rich enough, everything's affordable, but the rest of us live in the real world. And so we start looking at kind of the middle point, the median income and figuring out what's affordable to households at or below that point. And we really want to focus our efforts to make sure that that bottom half of the market is served the way the top half of the market is. VHFA also uh, operates a website called housingdata.org. And a lot of these issues are sort of laid out on that website where you go by county by county and you talk about like, how many people in this town have to commute to work and how many people are um, housing burdened, meaning they're paying more than, is it 50% of their income? Yeah, we check 30 and 50%. That that site, yeah, has information about every town in the state and there's more housing information. It goes into who lives there, what are their demographics, how much do they earn, what kind of homes for sale, homes for rent, how are they heated, how old are they, um, all this information and it really is helpful for communities and we we have a guide to how to write a housing needs assessment and i know a lot of communities have used that to really assess what their housing needs are because it's not the same town by town mm-hmm. and then there's also a lot of policy tools where if a community looks to assess what their housing needs are we then will give examples of oh you have dilapidated aging rental stock. Here's some ideas of what you can do to address that versus you need more starter homes. What can you do to address that? And uh, you need more housing for people with disabilities. You know, what accessibility should you look at there? And, but mostly um, our favorite thing for communities to do and not enough have done it. And we are trying to support this is form housing commissions or housing committees Mm -hmm. and bring these tools to those committees because that is where uh, you can really get into making your community housing ready. So when people Mm -hmm. feel at a loss of what to do to help housing and to make housing more affordable, uh, you know, their eyes glaze over when I start talking about tax exempt bonds and tax credits and all these programs. But really what can be done is just start having communities conversations at the local level fueled by the data we can provide. We have a list of all the housing commissions that we know of in the state links to them, examples of their charges or charters when they were created. How did they find members? What are they working on? What needs assessments did they do? And and what is, um, what initiatives they're working on to sort of create a community of support for these because 
you know, a lot of our towns, I think all of them have a cemetery commission, but only about eight of them have a housing commission. So that really says a lot about where our priorities lie in our state. And I think more conversations about the local housing needs are important if we are really going to address this crisis that we have. Well, one, yeah. Well, one thing you just said that really uh, stood out to me was making communities housing ready. And that is just really intriguing to me because I think this is why I like housingdata.org as a website is because housing, it, it gets into our sense of security. It gets into our sense of safety. It is our shelter. It's where we have our dreams at night. It's, it's where we have our family, all these really important personal things. And so it's, it's a place where a lot of stories form, understandably, but what does that mean in the real world? And, and so housing ready just really seems to stand out for me because I think a lot of people, it's like, well, if you need more housing, just build it. And on one level, yes, that's very true, but housing ready makes it sound like there's more to that nut to crack. There really is. And we're seeing it right now. The federal government has been um, funding money to the state as a result of COVID. And there are unprecedented investments happening right now with housing. But it's not a one tool can address all of our needs. I mean, if we're talking about homelessness, rental housing, manufactured homes, home ownership, shared living environments, the housing needs for people with disabilities versus elders versus those with young children, those with young professionals who may be single or coupled up, um, these are all very unique needs and situations. And, um, all this money won't do us much good if communities haven't grappled with what are their needs, what is their vision of how welcoming and inclusive it wants to be and how affordable it wants to be. And so these local conversations are where the rubber hits the road because without them, then um, we don't have the kind of thoughtful growth that we need to make sure that Vermont can house its current and future residents while also remaining the vibrant state with working lands and the like. So these are complicated conversations and we can't just say, put up housing everywhere, you know, across the board, that's just what we need full stop. We need to dig into the nuances of where, you know, what smart growth areas we need to be developing, how we protect the, the, the working lands and that can only happen at the local level. Mm-hmm. On, on that note, I'd love to shift the conversation to the Vermont Homeowners Assistance Program, which, as I understand, it, is a grants program, and it's to help people who have a primary home in Vermont. It's interesting in Vermont, we have to make the distinction. And, and it's to help with back payments of, of a whole host of things. So I would love to hear, Mara, since I'm done butchering that description, if you could give us the eloquent description of what this program does. <laughs> oh, you put the bar too high with eloquent. Um, so, uh, so yes, the Homeowner Assistance Program was funded a year ago. It was March of 2021. Um, Congress, full support from our delegation. Um, it, this was a part of um, 
the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan Act, and this is, everyone talks about the COVID money that the state is getting. This was in that same bill, but it's different from the housing money, uh, the COVID relief money that we hear about a lot of times because it was a standalone program and it had its own rules. It's not part of the billion dollars the state is um, divvying up for different uses of which some is going to housing. This was a standalone program um, that said that we could serve households. I talked before about the median income being the middle point. Mm-hmm. We can actually go up to 150% of median income to mm-hmm. serve people who have been impacted by COVID in some way um, with their past due bills. So impacted by COVID in some way, though, is pretty broad. So you don't have to have gotten COVID, but you have to show some kind of economic impact as a result of COVID. So maybe you lost your job, maybe your income was reduced, maybe you're paying more for childcare or transportation or goods and services overall, maybe there was a death in the family or um, your housing costs uh, went up considerably tied to COVID. And so you would qualify. Mm -hmm. Um, You are very right that this is just for primary residences, not vacation homes, um, not rental properties. There are, there is another rental assistance program that a sister agency runs, the emergency um, rental program. But this homeowner assistance program, like I said, was signed a year ago This one, we actually had to write up a plan of what we wanted to do in Vermont with it and get that approved by Treasury. Mm -hmm. And uh, that took a long time that um, got approved in the last few days of December. And so in mid-January, we were able to open this program. Um, And so we opened it in mid-January. We've had about, well, first I should say what it covers. It covers past due, there's four things it covers, past due mortgages, Mm -hmm. property taxes, utilities, and homeowner association fees, related um, fees to to housing like that. Mm -hmm. So um, we've had about 2,300 applicants. If, If they all were deemed eligible, which we're in the process of checking to make sure they're all eligible, but if they all were eligible and if they were correct that the amount they say they owe is exactly how much they owe, which sometimes it goes up and down a bit, you know, um, then just under $19 million of the money has been requested. And it's a $50 million program. Oh, wow. So um, it is moving. Um, a lot more than half of the requests are actually for utility assistance. Hmm. But if you look at the dollar amount, it changes and most of the requests are for mortgages, if that makes sense. If you look at the number of applications, um, most 64% of them need help with paying their past due utilities. But utility bills are usually less expensive than mortgage payments. The average mortgage payment we see people um, the monthly mortgage payment is about $1,100. Mm-hmm. So if you're three, six months behind on your mortgage, that's a bigger dollar amount than you're going to owe in past due utilities. Yeah, that's a scary dollar amount. Yeah. So we've helped people in every county of the state. 8% of our applicants are led by 
people who are people of color, their households headed by people of color. And just almost about 60% of the applicants are in the bottom quarter of households by income. Hmm. So these are very low income households. And I think that when we talk about homeowners, there's this expectation that homeowners can afford their housing because they got approved for a mortgage and they went through that process. But in reality, life goes on and incomes don't always stay what they were and costs do go up, taxes go up, utilities. And there are a lot of homeowners who are cost burdened and paying a lot of their income for housing. And so just a little blip um, and, you know, we always say like a broken muffler away from potentially, you know, there being a foreclosure. And so this program is to try to prevent foreclosure and keep people housed and get them through this economic storm that is COVID so that they can catch their breath a bit and then be sustainable long term. Mm-hmm. I'm curious too, Mara, um, what you just said made me wonder we have such a tight housing market in Vermont across the board, whether it's rental, whether it's, it's home ownership, it's across the board tight. I can imagine that what people have access to as far as what they can find for housing may not be always ideal for their income, whether that's a rental or if they live in a place without a lot of rentals, home ownership might be kind of their only choice. Am I right about that or... Absolutely. And there are many towns uh, in Vermont where there are, I'm going to say no rentals. I know there are some, but you know, they're, the, the vacancy rate is so low that they're never available. And so, um, yeah, people end up making bargains with themselves. Oh, I can afford this. Um, you know, a lot of First-time home buyers will convince themselves, well, you know, I'll get raises every year, and so my income will go up, or I'm willing to not eat out ever again so that I can afford this home. And that may work for a while, but at some point, you know, that may not always be what reality is. And so um, we do find folks who get in over their head because there's just not enough stock to meet our needs. And there's several proposals in the legislature right now that are looking to address that stock issue of how many homes we have in the state and trying to increase the the stock available. Help us, you did this a little bit, but I'd love to sort of put this homeowner assistance program into the bigger picture of COVID. Yes, it it sounds like it was a, a funding that was kind of spurred by COVID, but uh, I'm, I'm kind of struggling with my question. You know, COVID is a, a big blanket. Housing issues are a big blanket. So I'm just trying to drill down and see like, what, how does this assistance program fit into that big ecosystem of everything we're looking at right now? Yeah, this program is one of many, there, there is in total 150, $53 million of emergency rental assistance available uh, that I'm not qualified to talk about, but I know it's out there and has been um, going gangbusters and really preventing evictions across the board for renters. We have this program. We also have COVID money that's helping, like I said, to address the housing stock. The governor proposed 
$250 million be dedicated to housing from uh, the general ARPA money that um, the state got from the feds. And the legislature is in the process of doling that out. There's also our ongoing housing support programs. Every year, pre-COVID, every year, Vermont um, would put 60 to $65 million a year into housing mm-hmm. through different government programs um, to build housing. And um, so, and then you add in all the support systems that go with this, like the infrastructure that communities have to put in to be housing ready, such as water and sewer mm-hmm. and roads. There's uh, services through the agency human services and their um, sub grantees who support people living in housing. But, but to tie back to what you were discussing, one thing that's maybe a little frustrating for some of us who've worked in housing for a long time is when reporters have been calling us up to say, there's a housing crisis happening. What, you know, what caused this? How did we get here? What, what's happening? And there's a little part of me that wants to say, you haven't been paying attention for the last 30 years when we've been talking about this. Like it does feel like a tsunami wave and but at one point, when the ocean was receding into the ocean, we were going, that's not normal. I know it gave us more beachfront, but something wrong is at play here. And we should be worried and seek higher ground. And so now that the wave is crashing on us, they're like, wait a minute, what happened? It's like, yes, we knew that we were not building enough housing in this state for decades. We saw this storm coming. We knew that prices were going up and that incomes weren't increasing at the same pace. We've put some things in place to protect against that. We have a state housing trust fund that helps to pay for this, but that hasn't been adequately funded in just about all the years that it's existed. And it's been around for 35 years. So, um, What we're seeing now is that the housing needs in our state are reaching more and more people. I think it used to hit people at really acutely at the bottom income sphere. But now there's more of us who have children living in our basements who can't launch because they can't find a home, even though they have a great job. Uh, We have more elderly parents who are living in very unsafe housing situations because They won't leave the family homestead because there's nothing else in that community to serve them safely and appropriately. We have more people who are living with partners who they should or at least want to separate from, but one couple now needing two homes is unaffordable or unavailable. And so um, these are pressures that have been growing for many, many years but they are even more acute as they reach more and more Vermonters. Well, and I think, Maura, you made an interesting point that when, if I understood you correctly, when the housing crisis or when the water was receding from the beach, as you you mentioned, a lot of the people being affected were also people we tend to tell a lot of stories about. And, And lower ends of the spectrum, we have a lot of stories about why that exists. And yet... And we, we tend to say it, it exists on an individual level, but what you're pointing out is a systemic problem that you were starting to see on the horizon as a housing housing advocate. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one pointed example of this is that I, I'm not shy in saying, if you can't tell by a slight uh, accent, that I'm not from Vermont. And so I've only been here about 20 years. And being from New York, Western New York, means that when I came here and found out that uh, the number of people who are homeless, well, I'll just say pre-COVID, the number of people who are homeless in Vermont is around 1,100 people we can house them. That, that's not a problem. We, we can do it. That is a choice. We've chosen that we're comfortable with 1,100 people being homeless in this state. Now, at the peak of COVID, when that number was getting up to 2,800 people, we started freaking out. Apparently, societally, we decided 2,800 is way too many. But we've been hovering between 1,100, 1,300. We were at 1,500 and 1,700 um, pre-COVID. Like I'm, I'm thinking over the years, we have been uh, ratcheting the number down. We've been making strides and bringing that number down to about 1,100. But at some point, I, we just hovered there. And I think we collectively decided that was okay with us because we could have put the resources in place to address those kind of numbers. That is a surmountable program. Um, you know, again, a, a flawed analogy of thinking about climate change and, you know, these overwhelming numbers and you start questioning, does it matter? Can we change um, the course of history here? Can we do something different? When we're talking about homelessness, yeah, we could solve that problem. We've put a dollar amount to it. We've done reports. We have the numbers. We can do that. We choose not to. And I think it would be a different conversation for you and I, and we'd need another hour. But, you know, why is that? And when you talk about the stories we tell and the deserving and undeserving poor and how much we really take responsibility for uh, people who may have substance use disorder or mental health challenges and how complex and intersectional the conversation becomes, it becomes much more complicated to, to house everyone appropriately, but it's necessary if we really are going to meet these needs. Mara, thank you so much. We need to go to break and hear from some of our underwriters, but I appreciate sort of taking the pause there because I, I hope listeners will sort of take that in while, while we're on break. So stay tuned, everyone. The Montpelier Happy Hour will return in a moment. the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us wherever you find your podcasts and on BCTV and on Emily's YouTube channel. We have so many, I keep forgetting. <laughs> I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining us, I am speaking with Maura Collins, who is the executive director of the Vermont Housing Agency. That A, I'm always like, is it agency or authority? So yes, Vermont Housing Agency or VHFA. We're talking about some programs they're offering right now. We're also talking about housing in Vermont, which never gets old, unfortunately. Uh, a few housekeeping notes for folks. Uh, Emily is not here today, unfortunately. So I am the one who will be reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on the show belong only to the hosts, 
and the interviewee and not the platforms, not the agencies, not their friends, not their families, nobody except us. And then I must also say, um, as folks know, I live in a very creative, active building, which is very cool, but you might hear some music happening in the background. So if you do, yes, Mara and I are having a party, but it's it's a different party. <laughs> so Mara, before the break, we were we were talking about what as a community we're we're comfortable with when it comes to who has housing and who doesn't or why people have housing or why they don't. And I'm, I'm curious for, we're basically two, almost some people would say three years into this pandemic. And for you, as someone who has been doing housing for so long, has COVID taught you anything new or is it teaching you anything new? How are you, how are you seeing housing through the COVID lens, I guess? I'm going to say, because you just made the disclosure that the opinions are mine and not necessarily the official (laughs) position of my agency or board. Um, But I will say, actually, this one, we did have a board level discussion of. Uh, We have a general contractor who sits on our board who uh, does housing and other types of construction. And she was calling out a few months ago that the increased cost of housing related to the increased cost of labor isn't all bad. Mm-hmm. You know, we do need to pay people a livable wage. And one thing that has come out of COVID with the great resignation and the shifting dynamics in the workforce is that workers are expecting to be paid a fair wage and to have reasonable accommodations and situations. And this is really upending the power dynamics as an employer. Mm -hmm. And so it has repercussions such as increasing the cost of housing because these workers and laborers are less willing to um, do work so inexpensively. Um, additionally, when I say we saw the, the waters, you know, receding into the ocean and we saw the tsunami wave coming, um, one of that is the, the labor force itself when it comes to construction. We have long taught people that a four-year education, higher ed, is the only path forward and our trades have suffered as a result. And so the this is a very dated number, but several years ago, I heard from someone speaking saying that the average age of a construction worker in Vermont was 56 years old. Mm, well, I, I say it's a dated number. I think that's ten, from 10 years ago. So, oh my gosh, I hope it's not 66 right now. And that's not how it works. You know, new people come in, but still it, think about your bodies and your willingness to be hunched over in small spaces, pounding nails and, you know, on your knees and uh, doing this, this hard physically demanding work. It's a young person's game here. And so that shortage of the labor force has been happening for many years. And now we see it really playing out with COVID in some different ways with not being able to find contractors, skilled contractors, And we also expect so much more of our contractors. This isn't just, this isn't just, can you hammer a nail? 
But these are complicated HVAC systems that are going in that require uh, computer knowledge and coding and technology that we've never expected from these folks before because they're highly efficient systems that may be serving net zero energy buildings and the like. And this is important and we need to do it, but it means that the skill sets of the people really need to be different than what they used to be. And so some of the lessons from COVID have been workforce related and that plays out in a housing sphere as it is in so many other sectors. Thank you for that. I'm, I would love to hear, I'd love to dive into what I often hear is the life cycle of housing. And on your website, one of your colleagues wrote up a, a summary of a report from Harvard University, um, their Joint Center for Housing Studies. And I guess annually they put out a America's Rental Housing Report. And, and so your colleague was running through that. And a few things that stood out for me is on a national level, looking at the uh, demographics of who rents, and it tends to be mostly people of color and mostly folks who are single. And that this, this report found that the pandemic's funding, the emergency funding that many people received during the pandemic has been really helpful in keeping people housed, but that it also highlighted how we need a, a long-term rental housing safety net. And one thing your colleague pointed out for Vermont, which stood out for me as well, was that um, Vermont needs more housing stock. Yes. We need more affordable stock. Yes. We need more rentals. We need more, like everything across the board. But one thing that that I really kind of focused on was the point of Vermont needs more starter homes, particularly ones that are priced 250,000 or less. And I was like, Oh, I want to hear more about that. (laughs) We all want more of those homes. We don't have enough of those homes. They're not on the market. And You know, when I spoke earlier about how the state of Vermont has 60 some odd million dollars that goes to uh, support housing every year, even pre-pandemic, it's important to know that I think the number is like, I think 58 million of that goes to creating affordable rental housing and only two, maybe three million a year goes to support homeownership. I mean, uh, nationally, the U.S. has decided that it's going to help make affordable housing um, for rentals through HUD and rural development and tax credits, and that we are going to directly subsidize the buildings of, of rental housing. We're going to create those buildings and people can live there. We also have a huge Section 8 or Housing Choice Voucher program that subsidizes rents for people who are income qualified. And so we have direct subsidies going to create and support affordable housing on the rental side. For homeownership, we haven't had a direct subsidy program that's building the the actual homes, the bricks and mortar. Mm -hmm. Instead, we make homeownership affordable through really complicated financial mechanisms, like the fact that in America, we have an expectation and a standard of a 30-year fixed rate mortgage. 
that does make housing more affordable. It does mean if you know what your housing payment's going to be 25 years from now, you know, that that knowledge and that stability has value as well as the fact that hopefully incomes will rise over time and that home will become more affordable. I'm ignoring the utilities and taxes, which are more variable, but still, you're, at least that base housing cost is steady. And it, that's different. You know, in Canada, the standard product is a five-year adjustable rate mortgage. And so every five years, you don't know what your housing cost is going to be. That you know, that 30-year fixed rate mortgage is a way of helping affordability, as is things like homeowners have mortgage interests that they can write off their taxes or property taxes that they can deduct from their income taxes. Those, I say, complicated financial mechanisms make housing more affordable, but it doesn't actually build the homes. And that is where Vermont has fallen short. You know, it it used to be that communities wanted to grow. I mean, think back to these stories you've heard of the post-World War II, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, where communities wished that families with 2.4 children would show up and make their communities more vibrant. And they just wanted to draw them into their town. And so the municipality would put streets in with curbs, maybe sidewalks, they put lighting in, they'd have water and sewer running to um, these areas, just trying to lure in those developers so that the developer would come and plop down a dozen or two homes. And there you go, you have instant neighborhood. The, the financial constraints on municipalities is very real over the last several decades. And they can no longer afford to do that. And so now when a neighborhood gets developed, all those costs that the municipality would have taken on now get shifted to the developer. And they say, I want you to put in a road. And by the way, it needs to be this wide to accommodate the fire truck. I'm going to want sidewalks on both sides. I'm going to want lights and water and sewer. And, da, 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 da. and next thing you know, those costs get put onto those homes. And we look at the developer and we say, why can't you deliver me a home for under $450,000? And the developer says, it's impossible. The numbers don't work. And everyone is right. They, they're all accurate. They, you can't really build a neighborhood of homes for under $450,000, but we need them at $250,000. And so there are some things being discussed at the legislature that hope to address that. The governor has proposed a missing middle uh, homeownership development program that would be run through VHFA. Mm -hmm. And what we would do is we would lower that the cost of housing that people have to pay for and try to spur more housing developments. And man, the developers are ready. They're hungry for it. They keep hearing about it in the news and calling us up and saying, <laughs> I have, you know, there's a perfect example of a community, well-intentioned, great community, not far from my house, uh, that has put in requirements that if you're going to build homes, some number of them need to be affordable. And so the developer has some land, and he's trying to make the numbers work to sell a couple homes more affordably under these limits that the town put in and then have the other homes. 
but the numbers don't work. And so what's happening is if he's going to move forward and build these homes, he can sell two of them affordably, but the prices for the other four homes, the market rate homes now just went up so much Mm. that they are now luxury homes at a price point that not many of us can achieve. Mm -hmm. And so with some help, like through this missing middle program that's being um, proposed, the idea is, could we get all six homes to be reasonably priced? Two would be quite affordable. And then the other four would be kind of modest because we've helped out. Because what's happened is, I know of this parcel of land. We've been talking about it for, I think, 10 years. It's gone undeveloped. There's right. been homes not housing Vermonters because it can't work without some kind of subsidy. And it's too bad that we have demonized developers to a point that we envision them. You talked earlier about the stories we tell about people. Well, they're not an easy group to defend because everyone has these stories about these greedy developers who are just running away and, you know, like Scrooge McDuck, just counting their, you know, gold bullions or whatever. Like I have this cartoon image of, and that's not the case. These are oftentimes community minded organizations. I will say there's about a half dozen nonprofit housing developers who are rooted in a wonderful mission of serving our communities who even they can't make it work to build affordable home ownership. So that's how we get in this problem of not having enough homes below that 250,000 price point. Interesting. And so what happens when we don't have those homes below that price point? I mean, in, in the interest of full disclosure, you know, I'm a single person in my 40s and I don't own my own home. Uh, because it's been financially for some of the reasons have been financial. Some of them have been personal. It's a mix of both. But so I I can imagine what the answer to this question might be, but I'm wondering why, what would make the difference of having those starter homes under $250? I mean, wouldn't it make sense just to play devil's advocate to just make more rental housing? Why do we even need homeownership or yeah how does this how does that work within a community and why does it matter to have one or the other well we need a healthy mix of both um and that more than 95 percent of us have been renters at some point in our housing cycle and that's that's fantastic as you said sometimes it's financial sometimes it is Um, I don't know how long I'm going to be at this job. I want to uh, be available for the next economic opportunity that comes my way. You know, I'm interested in moving up the career ladder and that may not be a job in this same town. I may need to move for it. And so um, having that kind of flexibility of a year to year rental um, can really benefit and be the right financial. It's not always just financial limitations that keep people from buying a home. Sometimes it's the right financial move. Right. But there are also financial benefits of being a homeowner. And that's through the equity that one earns and the appreciation, hopefully, that a home has. You know, when you make, I talked about 30-year fixed rate mortgage, when you're making that payment and you're paying down the principal, starts off little by little, but it grows over time. You are that's a savings account in, in yourself. And Mm -hmm. so that um, additionally, if a home were to appreciate just because the market moved, 
that's additional uh, way of making some passive income. Passive because uh, homes appreciate and and you're not necessarily doing anything to to create that. It's you know what it is. It's you know as a middle class person, it brings passive income to the normal people. You know, I know of the Wall Street people who have all their stocks and bonds, and they earn all this passive income. But this is how the rest of us can have some passive income. You know, we have our active income from our day jobs, and then we have this passive and it and that equity. I mean, homes are the biggest source of assets that middle-class families have, home ownership. Mm-hmm. And so it's important. And it that is how families like mine tapped into that equity to send my siblings and I to college. Right. And so it does create other economic opportunities. And because my siblings and I were able to go to college, you know, we were able to achieve things in in our lives. But I think we both know that that opportunity for homeownership has not been equally available to all of us. Mm -hmm. A lot of, you talked about the state of the nation's housing report that the joint center came out with that shows that the homeownership rate of white households is very different than the homeownership rate of black households in Vermont. It's a difference of, um, I think it's 72% of white households are homeowners. 24% of black households are, I think those are the most recent numbers. I mean, we, the black homeownership rate in Vermont and nationally is worse now than it was the day Martin Luther King was shot. Wow. And it was the, it was fair housing legislation finally passed four days after he was killed. That's when we got the Fair Housing Act. So we are now worse off than we were then. Mm -hmm. And we need to really look at that. And so while while we want homeownership from a public goods perspective, it it roots people in Vermont. It keeps them here. It um, supports our communities, our jobs, economic vibrancy, all this. We also need to make sure that we're retaining people And we need to be that welcoming and inclusive state for everyone and not just folks who had access to that kind of home equity generations before. So when you think of moving forward and addressing some of Vermont's housing issues, whether it's rental or home ownership, what are the top three things on your list? Mm. Well, one of them I mentioned, but in case people missed the early part, I'll say to get a housing committee or a housing commission in every town in the state. Mm -hmm. I don't see why we shouldn't have one everywhere. And again, that I am not someone who's going to say that we need to bulldoze every piece of land and pop a home up everywhere we could. That's not appropriate. And and we our state would suffer as a result of that. Mm -hmm. I'm not a build baby build kind of person. But I do think that we need to, at the local level, be comfortable with these conversations and talking about who's living in our community, who wants to live in our community, and make sure those voices can be heard. Because too often, the people, the NIMBYs who come out to oppose housing developments are the people who are going to be the neighbors and maybe their views will change. Maybe they'll have to pick a new walkway when they take the dog out for a walk or whatever. 
But the voices who aren't at the table are the people who want to live in that community mm-hmm. and don't have access to it. And so I think that there's a lot of local conversations that can be done around housing. Another solution, and I'm getting a little more difficult now. The first one, I see no reason why it shouldn't happen and just <laughs> everyone should just do it. The, the next one I'll say uh, comes to resources and it comes to continually investing in housing and not being so reactionary that we spend all this money in the next couple of years, COVID money on housing, and then go back to our complacency that we had years ago. Right. You know, I, I know that a year ago when we all thought COVID was ending and how foolish we were, um, <laughs> that there were a lot of like retrospectives after a year of COVID right. that right. were saying like, what are the lessons we can learn and how can we bring these forward? And, and then at some point we went, oh my gosh, you know, apparently we're not done learning them, but still that kind of messaging is still true of what have we learned about housing as a result of what's happening now? And how do we not forget it when the masks go away and the federal funding goes away? How do we still structure ourselves as a state to support housing across the board? And that will mean financial contributions. It also will mean planning and zoning and lots of different things that can be done, but we need to hold on to these lessons and not go back to sort of the keeping the blinders on about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means investing in the creation of housing and the ongoing rental assistance support, as well as sometimes the services that need to accompany it to make sure that people can be successful, especially if they're without a home now and they need some kind of additional supports for them to be um, fully self-sufficient. So those were, those are really the two biggest things that I hope or that I, if I had a magic wand, uh, that's what I, I would pick those two. Okay. Thank you. I'm curious your thoughts. Um, we've, we've had folks from the public assets Institute mm-hmm. on the show before who have talked about wages in Vermont and how they, they really haven't kept up with the rest of New England, despite cost of living increases. I'm curious for you, do you see how much of that issue plays out in housing for you? Like straight up, if people had more money in their pockets. It, it's every decision we make. I mean, as I said earlier, housing affordability is about what's affordable to you, what's affordable to me, it's all individual. So it's simple math, it's how much do you make and how much does the house cost? And then you, you know, divide one by the other and you see how much of your income is the housing going to take up. So that means there are two levers we can pull on this, you know, mobile. We can either pull down the cost of housing or bump up the incomes. Mm -hmm. So I can control the incomes of about 40 people in Vermont because that's how many people VHFA employs. After those 40, I, I, I don't have a role. You know, I can't mm. set that. Uh, what I can do, my part, is to bring down the cost of housing. So when you hear me talk, I'm always going to be talking about how do we lower the cost of housing mm-hmm. by providing infrastructure, by lowering land costs, by making it easier to build and more predictable. And, um, you know, we can talk about technologies to make housing construction more affordable, all these things. But, yeah, 
there had better be a whole lot more people talking about raising the incomes so that we that math uh, works better because we do see the disparity growing over time as incomes are not keeping up with the rising costs of housing. Mm -hmm. In my freelance reporter life, I have been speaking with a number of real estate agents about, um, for lack of a better term, the the COVID refugees, Mm -hmm. folks who have come to Vermont either during COVID. Some have stayed, some have bought second homes. It's, you know, it's across the board. But I think one, at least in the experience of these real estate agents, one common thread is that prices are going up when it comes to the cost of housing. Um, And many have said, and I don't have data for this, this is just their immediate experience, that, um, they, they're concerned about folks who can't keep up financially um, and whether they will be able to enter the home owner market. Are you seeing anything like that on your, your landscape? You know, these COVID refugees um, are, they're hard to track. They're, they're undefinable. Um, and so there's not good data. As you said, there's just anecdotes Um, We also have some true refugees, new Americans, and we're seeing a lot more of them coming to our state. We also have long had climate refugees, we say, you know, people choosing Vermont because the South and West are too dry or hot or whatever it is. And so, um, you know, Vermont is blessed with an abundance of water and, um, uh, ironic that we say moderate climate uh, coming out of the winter, but it is true. And so, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why Vermont is going to continue to be a destination for a lot of people. And with that, uh, we have to acknowledge that we have long been a high vacation home state. There was just an article in the New York Times, I think about two weeks ago, that said Vermont has the highest proportion of its homes are vacation homes. We've looked at the data they're looking at, and honestly, I have a couple questions about it because it's they we're not exactly sure what numbers they're looking at, but but it, they're not far off. Although we can't tie out to get to number one, we do think we're number two behind Maine, and that has been the case for decades and decades and decades. We have long had a high proportion of our housing stock be vacation homes. That's nothing new. We are unusual in that way. Maine and Vermont. Um, have been number one, number two for a long time. But that does have an impact on the year-round full-time Vermonters who need homes to live in. And there are healthy debates happening about should the Vermonters who were here pre-COVID get first dibs on these homes or are these people moving to Vermont? Should they, you know, be able to now... Uh, call Vermont home and, and put down roots. And where, where's the fairness of, you know, the Vermont, speaking of pay, the Vermont pay scale is what it is. But now if your job is in LA or Manhattan and you can earn that pay scale, but live in a small town Vermont and maybe your home is a bit more affordable than it would have been in San Francisco or uh, San Diego or the like, then where's the fairness there? And so these are complicated questions. And 
one more time, I'm going to put in a plug that they're best had in many ways locally, because the, the related thing that I hear so much about is Airbnb, short-term rentals, and what is happening with those when you talk about people uh, coming to Vermont. Statewide, short-term rentals are 2.5% of our housing stock. That, that's not that much. You know, 8% of our housing stock is manufactured homes, and we certainly barely paid that housing enough attention. And so 2.5% of our housing stock, that's that's not really changing the face of Vermont. But if you're in Ludlow, Killington, um, Warren, Burlington, mostly ski communities plus Burlington, then Stowe, clearly, then it, it's like double digits in, of your housing stock is short-term rentals. So it's a very different conversation for those communities. And so there are policy approaches policy tools that need to be considered in those communities. Um, and it's the same thing when you look at vacation homes overall and just availability of housing stock to new Vermonters. We really need to look at this somewhat locally and make sure that Vermont can be welcoming and inclusive and that we can retain people, whether they've been here for decades or whether they've just moved here since the pandemic. But retention is important and affordability is key to trying to retain households. Mara Collins from the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll hear from a minute where folks can find some more information. But in the meantime, before we do that, I just want to toast because we always like to toast on this show. To have a drink. <laughs> A moisturizer bottle. A moisturizer. <laughs> it's actually not the weirdest thing someone has grabbed off their desk to do a toast <laughs> on the show. So I want to toast to you and your colleagues for um, just keep on keeping on with the housing issue because it really is, you know, it's people's place where they find their safety, hopefully, and their security. So cheers, cheers to that. that. If people want to find out more information about uh, the VHFA, where can they go? Well, vhfa.org is our website, and that stands for Vermont Housing Finance Agency. So vhfa.org. Most importantly, through that site, folks can find out about that mortgage assistance program that we talked about. If anyone is past due on their mortgages, their uh, property taxes, their utilities and their homeowner or their uh, homeowner association or condo fees, then they can go to vhfa.org and look for our homeowner assistance program and they will be brought to an online portal that can, they can apply online or they can just read about who's eligible, you know, what are the frequently asked questions about the program. But we really, um, there is $50 million of assistance available for Vermonters uh, it's going to be open for quite a while till we go through all the money, but um, it's important for people to look at that because through that program, we're providing uh, counseling, legal assistance, so people can really understand what their options are and how to make sure that their housing can be affordable long term. Thank you, Mara. And for folks who want to find out more about the happy hour, you can find us on our Facebook page. You can always email us at the Vermont Happy Hour at gmail.com and you can find us wherever you find your podcasts and you are currently listening on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro your community radio station has a great day.